Good evening, everybody. We're back in Ecclesiastes. Not one of the happier books in the Bible, but Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. In reading it, the reader has to decide if they agree with Solomon's conclusions. And if they do, then they have to ask, is there an alternative to the bleakness of the vanity of vanities? Because Solomon says, all is vanity, and that is the vanity of vanities. All is meaningless, worthless. He talks about life under the sun, the time that we have on earth, the time the Lord has given us on earth. And he's basically saying that all endeavors that people take up during their time on earth are vanity, are meaningless, unprofitable. You know, how can it be true that concerning our time on earth, that the vanity of vanities is that all is vanity? How can it be true that the most meaningless aspect of our time on earth is that all things are meaningless? You, know, you read this and you wonder, how can that be true? that all things are meaningless and ultimately unprofitable. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Some commentators in the past and philosophers in the past who would agree with Solomon's conclusions about life under the sun have alluded that the realization of this truth of life under the sun, that all is vanity, is the definition of hell, of hopelessness, and despair. So the question should be asked and should arise after the hearing of Solomon. We should ask, is there any light in this darkness? Is there an alternative to what Solomon is saying and what he is speaking? And there is. John eight twelve. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I believe that what Solomon says is true, that life under the sun ultimately is vanity because basically it's temporary. Everything we do, everything that we can see with our eyes is temporary. But there is an alternative. There is a truth that's, that's larger, and that's Jesus, the light of the world. Whoever walks in me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light, of life. Perhaps the key words in that verse are, Jesus spoke. The word of God is always the key, always the answer. To any question that we have, any concern that we have, the word of God is always the answer, always the key. The question is, in us, does the word of God truly abide in us? Are we receiving it as it truly is, the very words of the creator of the universe? Or are we receiving it as some kind of how-to textbook? I think this should be a special concern, especially for our young people, considering the age that we live in. I recently heard the percentage of college students raised in the church who profess, who profess faith at a young age and then walk away from the faith. And I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was shocking. It was the majority of kids who enter university professing faith raised in the church, the majority walk away by the time they're done with, with college. Jesus said in Luke, nevertheless, 
when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Given the statistics concerning young people raised in the church, we can see why he would ask that. We have a generation of kids raised in the church who are walking away. This could be a failure of the church, and more so in the age in which we now live, more than in any other age before us. It's like we've raised a generation of young people who all through their young lives were encouraged to believe, but for the most part, were not encouraged to think. And then when they get out and they hear all this opposition to the absolute truth, it raises doubts in their heart. And they begin thinking, but in, but in the wrong way. When Joanne and I first got saved, we were involved with this church, and they had a really good youth group, teen group. And it was very evangelical, and they were always going on outings and stuff. And there was this one kid that we used to bring to the teen group who was very smart. For his age, he was very intellectual, and he wasn't a believer. He, he didn't believe the Bible was true, and he had all these reasons why he didn't believe the Bible was true, was the word of God. And I used to love to debate with him because he was able to. He was a thinker. And this one time, they went on an outing to the lake, and I remember this night, this kid was sitting on a picnic table, and the pastor's daughter decided that she was going to minister to him. And, and try to convert him. So she went over and sat next to him and, and shared her faith with him, that she believed that the Bible was true, and she believed in Jesus, that he is who the Bible says he is. And she asked him, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe in the word of God? And he didn't really, to his credit, he didn't even want to talk about it. He said, this isn't the time or place. I don't want to get into it. But she kept pressing him. And finally, he just laid it out for all the reasons why he didn't believe the Bible, all the intellectual reasons why he didn't believe the Bible was true. And that night she went home and told her father she had lost her faith. And a short time later, one of the elders came up to this kid and said he was no longer welcome at the youth fellowship because he was undermining the faith of the kids. And I thought to myself, what faith? You know, 10 minutes with this kid and you lose your faith? You know, what faith did you have? Um, when young people read their Bibles, if they are reading their Bibles, they quickly pass by that word Selah. They don't stop and they don't think. They don't meditate on it. They don't consider it. They don't let it absorb into their hearts. You know, and they fall away because suddenly, as they get older and out of the environment of the church and family, they are exposed to thinkers who are in opposition to biblical truth and doubt in the reality of faith is planted. People need to think. I came across an anonymous quote by this writer, and he said, I don't care what the sages of this age think. I only care that they make me think. The hearing of those thinkers who oppose biblical truth should only reinforce and strengthen our faith. We should be in that place where everything is filtered through the word of God and we know the word of God and it abides in our hearts and we're abiding in God's word. And everything that we hear that is in opposition to that should only cause us to, to strengthen our faith. Jesus, seeing the power of deception in the last days, said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, the word of God is the key always. 
So verse 1 in chapter 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And he's speaking of the times and season, seasons that everyone on earth experiences at different times in their lives. They were also, these words were also the lyrics of a popular song way back in the day. Does anybody remember the band that did it? Thank you. Um, one of my favorite bands used to be, I saw them perform many times. And in fact, uh, the main guy in that band, Roger McGuinn, is now a Christian and doing Christian songs. So he's talking about the times and seasons that everyone on earth experiences, times of great joy and times of great loss. In Sunday school, we tell the kids that their lives are like a book. The first page, you come into this world. The last page, you leave this earth. And all the pages in between are filled with happy times and sad times. I think it's important for kids to realize that everyone's life is filled with both. So they can rejoice and be thankful for the good times and be found leaning on the everlasting arms during the sad. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. These, there are set times in our lives. There is a set time and a predetermined time to come into this world and a set time to leave it. Nobody dies too young and no one hangs around for too long. Those departures that we consider to be untimely in heaven, if it is made known the reason, the sovereign reason, our grief will be forgotten and we will say in every case, thank you, Lord. He goes on, he says, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, to reap what you have sown. Obviously, if you're a farmer, you know there is a certain season when you plant seed, and there is a season when you harvest what you sown. And in our lives, we sow and reap the consequences of what we sow. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. I think we know how to sow to the flesh. I'm very good at that. It just comes naturally. It's what the natural man does. It's, it's all he can do. It's the fallen nature and what one does to deceive that nature into feeling that it's alive. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the first mentioned things are sexual sins. Those whose God is the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're serving the flesh. And for those whose lives are constantly marked by the works of the flesh, it is a steady deterioration of body, mind, and spirit. If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. And when a believer sows to the flesh, the flame that keeps us alive grows dimmer and dimmer, the flame of love, peace, and joy. God does not take away salvation from those 
who by faith once received it, but we can definitely forfeit our blessings and damage our lives and trouble the lives of those around us. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Again, sowing to the flesh is easy. We just give the flesh what it wants. But how do we sow to the Spirit? We give the Spirit what he wants. What does he want? He wants us to live. You know, in Sunday school, we tell the kids, what does God want you to do? And they have a whole list of things that God wants them to do. Obey your parents, read your Bible, do this, do that. But basically, we tell them, there's just one thing God really wants you, only one thing God wants you to do, live. He wants you to live. To have that abundant life that Jesus promised. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of the Father and of Christ Jesus. He wants us to possess and live in, joy, in love, joy, and peace. You think about these things first mentioned as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. If you can find a better offer from anything that would appeal to the flesh, you won't find it because there is none. The promises of the flesh are a lie. Corinthians 17, 17 says, Sanctif or, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The way we sow to the Spirit is to allow the truth to permeate our hearts and minds. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Reading, meditating, praying over the word of God is how we sow to the spirit. It is how our spirit is awakened to serve the living God in truth. It is how God works in us to will and to do his will. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The wages of sin is death. Sin separates us from God. That is the definition of death. If we sin, we are condemned to die, unless someone dies for us. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. When he died, we died, but by the Spirit we live. We are made alive by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We know this verse to be true. You know, Christians have heard it all their lives. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh are going to be in us until the day we go home and are perfected. But if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill those lusts. But the question for me has always been in hearing that phrase, verse, okay, but how do I walk in the Spirit? What do I do? How do I do it? It is not by might or power. It is not by our determination or effort. The quantity and quality of time we walk in the Spirit is achieved by the quality and quantity of time spent with Jesus. If we invest that quality time in his word and in his presence, we will find ourselves walking in the spirit. If we're in the word, if we're spending that time in his presence and absorbing the word of God and it's infiltrating our hearts, we won't have to try to walk in the spirit. We will be walking in the spirit. We'll find ourselves walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Verse 3, 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to kill. Somebody wrote, when the judgments of God are abroad in a land and lay all waste, then when he returns in ways of mercy, then is a time to heal. What he has torn to comfort a people after the time that he has afflicted them. The Bible says the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And I think we've all experienced the, experienced the receiving of grace when we least deserve it. And God heals us. Or when we're chastened by the Lord and may feel like we've been cast away from his presence. You know, this Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. But I'm, I know for me, there's time that I feel condemned. I feel like I'm condemned and cast away. And we feel that way, that we're cast away from his presence and he restores us and reaffirms his love for us. And he always does, time after time after time. There are also times in our lives when events happen that could take the life out of us. Jesus said he came to heal the brokenhearted. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And everybody experiences all these things sometime in their lives. Psalm 30.10, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Solomon says there's a time to dance. There was an English Puritan commentator named John Trapp who didn't care for what Solomon said about dancing. The Puritans really weren't into dancing too much. He didn't like it that Solomon said that there is a time to dance. He wrote, here is nothing for mixed immodest dancings. Where there is dancing, there the devil is, saith the father. And cannot men be merry unless they have the devil for their playfellow? Dancing, saith another, is a circle whose center is the devil, but busily blowing up the fire of lust, as in Herod, that old goat. I don't think Mr. Trapp was going to the prom that year. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to cast away stones. In the ancient world, when they had wars, it was they would commonly scatter stones on the enemy's land to hinder farming. They would fill their land full of stones. This gathering of stones could infer that there is a time to remove the stones an enemy has thrown into your field, and there is also a time to throw some rocks in their field. For some time now, the enemy has been throwing rocks in our field, and there comes a time to go on the offensive. But the question is how? How does the church go on the offensive? The Christian church has lost its voice in this world for the most part. There was a time when the church had a voice and was an influence within the culture. So how do we get that voice back? Is it ranting along with the talking heads on YouTube? I'm glad that there are alternative outlets for differing views, but that's not how we get our voice back. The only way we can get throw a few rocks into the enemy's field as if a supernatural event occurs. 
if there is a revival within the church, an outpouring of the Spirit of God that revives the church. There is no other way for this nation to be saved. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Not that people hear our voice, but that his voice is heard. And every revival, whether in this country or abroad, every revival that I have ever read about, and I've read about a lot of them, has always, every one of them has always started at a prayer meeting. Has always started at a small prayer meeting. Not that God hears our voice and does what, he, what we want, but that when he is in, when the, but when he, in his perfect time and way, decides to do what he wants, we are present, we are there, and we are open. May he pour out his spirit and revive our hearts. This church meets on Tuesday nights for prayer, and we should meet in hopeful expectation that maybe tonight would be the night that the Lord would open up heaven and pour his spirit out upon us, and that revival would start and spread could very well happen. We should meet in expectation of that. Verse 6, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Again, everybody experiences these things at some time in their lives. It's common. These are common experiences. And if you saw my basement, you would see that I haven't experienced that time to throw away yet. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. James 1.19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We all hope and pray that our words will impart wisdom to the hearers. Perhaps the real prayer of the wise should be, Lord, keep my mouth shut unless you have truly given me something to say. And I have prayed that, Lord, keep my mouth shut. My, keep my mouth shut. But unfortunately, it's usually in repentance for having opened my mouth already. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. We are living in the greatest time of potential peace that the world has ever known, not the peace of an earthly carnal kind. There are, have always been wars. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. But as the angel said to the shepherds on the night that the Son of God came into the world, in Luke 2.10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. We who were all at war with our Creator because the gift of free will was used to separate ourselves from him, we can now in this age of grace experience peace with God. There is absolutely nothing more essentially important for people than to have the assurance that they are at peace with God. Excuse me. We sing the song, He is our peace. The assuredness of that fact is the key to deliverance from fear. 
How do we obtain peace with God? He is our peace. I love that scripture, that part. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 9, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. All labor done under the sun is vanity, is worthless and meaningless, Solomon would say. But the God-given task which the sons of man, men are to be occupied is to find our way back to our Creator. How is this tax, task accomplished? John 6.27 Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the fa God, the Father, has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That is the work of God. Jesus doesn't say that the receiving of this salvation through faith in Christ is the task that men must accomplish. It's not our work. It's the work of God in us that even gives us the faith to believe. He says this is the work of God. Not the work of men, but the work of God. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. He has put eternity in their hearts. Every culture throughout history has a tradition or way of thinking concerning an afterlife. He has put it in our hearts that this isn't all there is. That life continues after the, that life continues after the body dies. I find it hard to believe that even in the heart of the most ardent of atheists, there isn't a glimmer of hope that this is true. Amazing Grace is the most recorded song of all time. It pulls the heart of everyone because he has put eternity in their hearts. Despite willful unbelief, Amazing Grace is what every heart longs for. Verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. labor. It is a gift of God. He talks about enjoying life, the gift of God, and he talked about this in the last chapter. And the question is, are we enjoying life? As Christians, are we enjoying life? We should be, in spite of all the disintegration in our country, in spite of all the insanity that's going on around us, in spite of all the trials and hardships, we can enjoy life because we can rise above the fray. And we can rise above it because we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we can enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy. Psalm 68.3 But let the righteous be glad and let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Verse 14 I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Solomon realizes that all labor under the sun is temporary, but eternal worth is only through the work of God. Life under the sun is vanity and was meant to be so that men would realize this and would look up. Verse 15, that which has already been and what is to be has already been. 
and God requires an account of what is past. Solomon says over and over again that life under the sun is meaningless, is vanity. Yet if God is the judge and God requires an account, then that means that everything has meaning. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So enduring our, our lives under the sun, within those institutions that we rely on for reason and stability, within these, pla within these places where there was to be good moral judgment and righteousness, evil and iniquity had crept in, and in some cases become dominant. Psalm 92.7, when the wicked spring up like grass and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, the reason is, it goes on, it is that they may be destroyed forever, but you, Lord, are on high forevermore. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? You know, people are always asking, do animals go to heaven? Is there an afterlife for animals? You know, I hope there is for dogs. Cats, I'm not too sure about. Uh, someone, I heard someone tell a story that God was on his throne and a dog and a cat came before him. And God said to the dog, Given a given account of yourself, and the dog said, "Well, I was a good dog. I was a good to my master. I protected him. I was obedient." And God said, "Good, good dog. You can sit on my left hand." And he said to the cat, "Give account for yourself." And the cat said, uh, "I believe you're sitting in my seat." So Solomon's saying that death comes to every created thing on earth. People don't like to even think about it because it's frightening. The greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. And what exactly happens the minute we pass through the veil is largely unknown. But we do know what the word of God says. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Hebrews 2.14, inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Again, like we said, nothing is more important than somebody knows that they have peace with God to be free from the fear of death. 2 Corinthians 5.1 for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. 
For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. No one looks forward to the moment of death because we don't want, because we do not, don't want to die. We look to Christ for life that never ends. We look to Christ. We're not afraid of death because we don't, not because we want to die, but because we want to live. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, so I perceive that nothing is better than, than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring, bring him to see what will happen after him? We cannot see what will happen after us, but we know what is before us. Life under the sun will indeed dissipate and vanish, but life in Christ will continue into all eternity. And that's our joy, and that's our hope, and that's... That's our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope that you've given us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from fear, that you would cleanse us and deliver us from this body of death, Lord, from this flesh, that more and more, Lord, that your word would just envelop us, Lord, and we would walk in the spirit. We just pray, Lord, to be with you, that there would be no other love in our lives, Lord, except you. So, Lord, take our lives, we pray, and we thank you, Lord, for what we have to look forward to and know that nothing can take it away from us. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.